Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, we've made it to part three and the final installment in our series about systemic racism in the criminal justice system. Today, we'll delve into the prison system, which includes prison conditions, convict labor, and post-incarceration issues. Yes, part three of the Justice Trilogy. And for me, it may be the hardest. We all know that there is a need for prison. When crimes are committed, People should be punished, but a lot of times once those cell doors close on the prison or the jail, people just stop caring about prisoners. However, I think we're going to show our listeners today that although prisons are a needed part of society, there are some very large discrepancies when it comes to how Black African Americans are treated in the prison system. We will indeed. In fact, the American prison system epitomizes the definition of systemic racism. Remember, that's when a group is in power and it uses that power to create patterns, practices, and procedures and policies to consistently penalize, disadvantage, and exploit members of non-white racial ethnic groups. Exactly. I'm glad that we reviewed those terms. A lot of times people get flubbed and flustered when other people weaponize terms like racism um, to use them for their ends, especially when they truly don't understand their meaning. So that was a great review. I always like a review to make sure we're all on the same page. Now, before we go much further, I want to throw a number out to you. 2.2 million people. Okay, so I'm guessing that's the population of a city like Chicago or Houston. Well, that's a good guess, my dear niece. Both of those cities have populations of just over 2.2 million. But I'm not talking about cities. That's the number of people incarcerated in the United States. In 1972, there were only 200,000 people incarcerated in America. Today, that number has grown to 2.2 million, with the large majority being Black African Americans. So if our listeners could use their imagination, imagine everybody in the city of Houston instantly gone, totally gone, and where they've gone to is an island you can't get them out of. Mm, That's a good analogy. Very good analogy. Now, as always, we don't just pull information out of the air. So much of the information we'll share today are facts from the Equal Justice Initiative. That's the organization founded by Brian Stevenson, the widely acclaimed public interest lawyer and best-selling author of Just Mercy. Uh, The Equal Justice Initiative provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. And for those who have seen the movie Just Mercy, he was played by 
Michael B. Jordan. Now, this organization also created the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, the nation's first memorial dedicated to the over 4,000 Black African Americans who were murdered and terrorized, terrorized by the horrific act of lynching. Very necessary, very necessary. The prison system in America has a long and complex history that points its way to the way prisons look today. A book that gives a historic look at the horrific prison system in the South is Slavery by Another Name, the enslavement of Black African Americans from the Civil War, War to World War II by Douglas A. Blackman. Yep, Courtney, we drew on that book extensively because Black men captured the cruelty of imprisonment in many Southern states, and in particular in Alabama, which will be important to know later on in the show. Now, Blackman writes that during the 80 years following the Civil War, as many as 800,000 people were caught up in some type of prison force labor. And I think most Americans don't even think that we have uh, situations or issues around that. Uh, prison force labor included convict leasing, peonage, which means having to go to prison because you're paying off a debt, and or chain gangs. Now, large northern-based corporations regularly lease convicts for dangerous and unhealthy work, and some of those corporations still exist today. Blackman says that the control of county convicts was lucrative for both the companies who acquired the convicts and the sheriff who supplied them. So if you're getting in your mind's eye like Boss Hogg from Dukes of Hazard or the sheriff from who was played by Jackie Gleason and Smokey and the Bandit, that Southern sheriff in the white suit, that's this imagery that we're getting. Now, in addition to the fees that sheriff re sheriffs receive from the defendants, they also kept any amount left over from the daily feeding uh, fees paid for each prisoner, the money for them to eat that the state gave. As a result, Alabama sheriffs were financially motivated to arrest and convict as many people as possible and simultaneously feed them as little as possible. The job of the county sheriff became a very heady enterprise, which was more like trading mules or animals at a fair than law enforcement. You're right. You're right. It was very unethical what they did, but it was legal. Now, the system particularly preyed on Black African-American men, although women were caught up in the system too. Now, once convicted, African-Americans were routinely sent to places like the coal mines near Birmingham for offenses as slight as selling a bottle of moonshine. Whenever the mine needed workers, suddenly the sheriffs would round up dozens of minor offenders over a few days' time and charge them with things like vagrancy, alcohol violations, and other minor offenses. Nearly all of them were quickly sentenced to hard labor and shipped out within 10 days to fill a gap in the men at the coal mines. Now, many of the prisoners who worked in those mines and those, those steel mills around Birmingham died of, mistreat, of mistreatment and malnutrition. Now, their bodies were dumped unceremoniously into shallow graves on the edge of the mine sites, and those shallow, unmarked graves still exist today. Now, Courtney, I think you always have a story to tell us. So uh, do you have one that has something to do with its convict labor? 
I do. I have watched the documentary Another Form of Slavery and read Slavery by Another Name. And that documentary and book has so many stories that I could share. But like we say in our podcast, I wanted to take a deeper dive. And what I found was something very dark and very sinister. Ooh, boy. Well, I guess we better warn our our listeners that some of this is not suitable for children and it might make your stomach turn. Yes, I want to issue a trigger warning, especially for our final story of the day. I have three stories, but the final story, definitely, if you are claustrophobic, have any kind of fear of enclosed spaces, the dark, anything like that, you may want to turn off uh, that story because it deals with that. But first off, I'm going to give you an example of what happened to children when they fell into the hands of the state of Louisiana. Now, women, even though they were already slaves, Black African-American women who were already slaves in the state of Louisiana around 1848 could have their children sold by the age of 10. There was a state law that was passed that any Black African-American child born within the prison system became the property of the state itself. So mothers who were already in prison had to watch their children be bought and sold by the very men who had them incarcerated. That is so cruel. You mean to tell me if they had a child while they were in prison or if they had children, they were taken from them and sold? They were taken and sold. And mothers often saw their children working on the prison grounds. But because they were property of the state, there was nothing they can do because they were already slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who love a little thriller, the next blurb I'd want to share with you would be called The Grave Digger of Cummings Prison. In 1968, the Desert Sun newspaper out of Palm Springs, California, reported the story of Reuben Johnson. Now, Reuben was a black male inmate at the prison, and his sole job since he had been there since 1937 was burying the bodies of prisoners who died under mysterious circumstances. Now, the prison wasn't haunted, and there was no monster lurking in a dark corner. These mysterious circumstances were prisoners murdered by the guards. Mr. Johnson himself said that he could think back to burying almost or at least least 2,000 bodies, and he had told the reporter that he had buried 12 that very day. Oh, he was really busy up to nefarious work as a result of murders by these uh, prison guards. Wow. Exactly. Now, all those, each, although each of those stories would have been great to share, but there was one story that stuck out. It stuck out because it took place in on one hot day in Texas. Now, I can't wait to share the story with the listeners, but I have to set the stage a little bit. The location was the Harlem Prison Farm, which was once known as the Harlem Plantation. Now, many Southern states often use plantations um, and repurpose them, if you will, into prisons, which was an irony I'm sure was not lost on its Black uh, African-American prison population. Now, the Harlem Prison Farm was purchased by the state of Texas in 1885 with additional land in 1888 and 1907. So it was huge. It was a huge prison complex. And in the state of Texas, how they made their money was through convict leasing. 
which is what we've been talking about. Now, most of the inmates, um, as the state of Texas would say, had an agricultural background, which in no uncertain terms meant they used to be slaves. <laughs> That's convenient. And although African-Americans only made up 20% of Texas's population at the time, they made up half, 50% of its prison population. Once again, we outnumber everybody in that terrible, terrible situation. Exactly. Now, I know you like when I make the story personal, but I need to run a few stats by you to show how lucrative convict leasing was to the state of Texas. And the best way to do that is with money, something we all can understand. Now, the state of Texas divided their workers into two tiers and charged a premium for the top tier workers. Now by 1908, the top tier workers were almost or were young and fit and almost always African American. And they commanded a fee of $31 a month. Now if you calculate that out in today's money, that's $875.81. So I could pay $875.81 to get a worker. I could lease somebody for that amount of money. Yep. Mm. Now, the revenue for convict leasing in Texas wasn't that big of a deal in its first two years. It was $175,000, which equals out to about $4 million or more, a little over $4 million in today's money. That's but pretty good. That's pretty good. But that number jumped by 1900. By 1900, the state's revenue from convict leasing was $14,233,604.76. Well, that's beyond lucrative. That's a pile of money. No wonder the state uh, invested in that kind of situation. Mm, mm, mm. And the best part about it is they had an unlimited workforce, or I shouldn't say the best part, but the best part to them was (laughs) they had an unlimited workforce who couldn't quit, they couldn't demand better pay, they couldn't unionize, they couldn't ask for better wages, and the prison did the bare minimum to keep their prisoners alive. It was slavery under the guise of justice. Yep, slavery didn't end. So with all the facts out the way, the stage is set for what played out on that hot day in 1913 in Richmond, Texas, to 12 Black inmates at the Harlem prison farm. It's what happens with racial injustice, convict leasing, bad prison conditions, and greed swirl together to make a perfect storm that only ends in tragedy. Well, my dear niece, you certainly have set the stage for what I know is going to be a gut-wrenching story. I've just got to take a deep breath right now and get ready. So um, before you tell that story, let's take a break and then come back to it, okay? Okay. Okay, Courtney. I 
am getting to say I'm anxious to hear how this story ends. I'm anxious because you already warned us it has to do with claustrophobia and tight spaces and abuse. So um, I'm anxious only because I want to get it out of the way. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information. And once you're there, you can take our course. Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. It starts on October 1st. So, and Carol, I'm just going to reiterate because I know that you're claustrophobic. I'm I am, to, I am. I am married to someone who is very claustrophobic and my uncle Jim is the most claustrophobic person I know. So if stories about the dark, hot spaces, Anything like that causes you any kind of stress or anxiety, please do not listen to the story or listen to it at your own risk. You have been warned. Thank you. Thank you. Now, imagine Texas in September. You and I both know what Texas is like in September. Hot, hot, Very hot. The sun has not even come close to stopping its assault on the Lone Star State. So for 12 inmates on the Harlem prison farm, when they had been accused of laziness, they knew that they were in trouble. They were chained together and one of the guards had accused them for not for not picking cotton uh, or accuse them of not picking cotton fast enough. The men were already broken, beaten, and injured, but none of that mattered to the guards. It was just the quota of a hundred pounds per man every day. And these men were chained together while they were picking and dragging that hundred pounds behind them, right? Exactly. They were chained together. So if a man fell or if a man died, they just had to keep picking. Mm. Now the punishment for laziness was known across the prison. Didn't matter race of the inmate, any anything. Everybody knew that if you got caught being lazy on the Harlem prison farm, you were going to the dark cell. Mm. Now the dark cell was nine feet long, seven feet wide, and seven feet tall. It had no running water and it had no bathroom. And if you were sent there, you would not eat for your duration in the dark cell. Oh, the dark cell. I'm getting, that gives me the heebie-jeebies just hearing about it. But hearing what's going to happen next is, I know, going to take our breath away. It's going to take an even darker turn. Now, I gave you the dimensions of the dark cell. Now, the guard somehow managed to squeeze 12 grown men into the cell. The temperature outside had already reached 100 degrees, and fresh air was scarce for even one man in the cell. But 12 men went in, and I'm going to tell you the story of how only four came out. Mm. Now, the door of the cell had four holes the size of a quarter. One of those holes by someone had been plugged. So there were only three holes for fresh air. Now, three of the survivors claimed they lived only because they fought and clawed their way to the air holes in the door. And one, the fourth man who survived, said that he just found a lonely crack and tried to breathe whatever fresh air that he could because he knew they'd be in there all night long. 
So this was survival of the fittest. Who oh, boy. It was. It reduced these men to almost animalistic tactics to just take a breath of fresh air. Mm. Now the men cried and shouted and told the guards there were men dying in the hot, sticky darkness of the cell, but their cries went unanswered. The guards' response was, well, men always cry like that in the dark cell. Who, who wouldn't? Now the next day, the first guard on duty heard the claims of a dead man inside the cell. He went to check and instead of doing a thorough check, he spotted one dead body. He had two of the prisoners already who had endured this horrific night of terror in the cell, had them remove the one dead man and put them back in the cell with the other men that had died. So they got no break whatsoever. The only break, the only fresh air they got is when they carted out the one dead body that the guard claimed that he saw. Hmm. Now, once the men were locked back in the cell, the guard waited for his manager to arrive. Now, when the cell finally opened, they found that eight men had suffocated to death in the dark cell. Oh, that's gruesome. Gruesome and cruel. No one was ever held accountable for the deaths of these men. And yes, they were criminals, but somebody should have been held accountable. The Attorney General of Texas ultimately concluded that prison officials were not culpable because placing these men in this suffocating chamber or and failing to listen to their cries for help did not violate the law. Now, four of the men that died in that cell are buried on the property of Jester State Prison, which the name was changed from Harlem to Jester State Prison to this very day. And that prison is still in operation. Oh, that's an ignominious, cruel, and, and horrific story. Wow. Wow. That's all I can say. Now, Aunt Carol, I'm not naive enough to believe that the prison system magically fixed itself and it's fully functioning as a rehabilitative part of our society. But these types of stories, like I just told, they don't happen anymore, right? Well, the, the as serious a story, perhaps not. But my dear niece, there are still problems. Now, the Constitution requires that prison and jail officials protect incarcerated people from physical harm and sexual assault, but facilities nationwide are failing to meet this fundamental duty. Uh, they're putting incarcerated people at risk of being beaten, stabbed, and raped every day. Earlier, I mentioned we'd hear about Alabama later in the program. Well, Alabama's prison record from the past hasn't improved much. Its prisons are the most violent in the nation, and the U.S. Department of Justice found in a nationwide investigation that Alabama routinely violates the constitutional rights of people in its prisons, where homicide and sexual abuse, abuse is common, knives and dangerous drugs are rampant, and incarcerated people are extorted, threatened, stabbed, raped, and even tied up for days without guards noticing. I know we've been talking about Southern prisons a lot, but I don't want to single them out. Although the vestiges of Black African-American chattel slavery, convict leasing, chain gangs, and peonage all rest on their shoulders, the and the mistreatment of African-Americans in the South does still exist, and in other places in the country, 
but it doesn't rest on their shoulders alone. As recently as 2019, prisons were found violating the basic rights of prisoners, like not giving them hot water or heat in the winter. Now, a show that I never thought, and I'm even almost embarrassed to say that I watch. I'm embarrassed uh, for you. Is Love and Hip Hop. Now, it's a guilty pleasure. I'm not going to lie. I love the antics of the characters. But if it wasn't for one of the show's stars, Yandy Smith-Harris, I would have no idea about the human rights violations happening in, in the prison called MDC Brooklyn. Her husband was incarcerated in that prison and he informed her like many of the other inmates inside those walls that uh, basic rights were being violated. It now was this a, is in Brooklyn, New York? Brooklyn, this is New in York? Brooklyn, New York. New okay. York, New York. Now, in February of 2019, the Bureau of Prisons has a, had a facility, and it's still in function today, MDC Brooklyn, that left its prisoners without heat or hot water in the winter, even electricity, so they were in the cold with no hot water or any lights. Mm. It, it took family members, social media influencers like Yandy herself, civil rights justice organizers, and the prisoner's own legal counsel to tell about what was going on with the inmates. Because if they didn't tell, nobody would know. This sounds inhuman. That's exactly what Yvonne Murchison, the mother of one of the inmates, said. She asked, where's the president? Why isn't he worried about this? Even though they're prisoners, they're still human beings. One federal defender, Amanda David, said that in her four and a half years as a federal defender, she never saw the conditions like she saw at MDC Brooklyn. Even the governor, Andrew Cuomo, was brought in and told of the horrific conditions, and he is launching a full investigation. Thank goodness. That just has to happen. Those are wretched conditions for sure, Courtney. And those wretched conditions, like you say, they're not just in southern prisons. They're in prisons across the country. Uh, for example, there are more than 60,000 people in the U.S. held in solitary confinement. They're isolated in small cells for 23 hours a day. They're only allowed out for showers, brief exercise, or medical visits. And they're also denied calls or visits from families family members. And this is just inhumane treatment. Studies show that people held in long-term solitary confinement suffer from anxiety, paranoia, perceptual disturbances, and deep depression. And nationwide, suicides among people in, held in isolation account for almost 50% of all prison suicides, even though less than 8% of the prison population is in isolation. And at this point, I have to mention the story of Khalif Browder. Khalif was a Bronx high school student of 16 years old, and he was sent to Rikers Island for three years. Two of those he spent in solitary confinement due to treatment by staff and inmates. His family was denied even allowing to try to bail him out because the court claimed that he was already on probation. Well, and all he did was steal a backpack, right? He didn't steal the backpack. He was never convicted. Oh, wow. That's even worse. 
When Khalif was released, he was immediately thrust into the spotlight. Actors, rappers, and activists came to his aid, and he tried his best to be an advocate for prison reform just by telling his story. But unfortunately, he could not escape the nightmare of his teen years on Rikers Island, and the ghost of solitary confinement haunted him. Khalif, at the age of 22 in 2015, hung himself in his parents' home. And I implore our listeners, please learn more about his story. And you can do that. You can start your journey learning about Khalif by going and watching the Netflix documentary, Time, produced by hip-hop icon Jay-Z, that spotlights his story. Oh, that's such a sad and tragic situation, Courtney. Even though he was able to get out of prison, it just never, never got beyond, uh, he never got beyond it. You know, some of the reason, though, it's going to be difficult to reform prisons is because much like in the past, prisons can mean big money. So fixing situations like police, it's going to be difficult. The government and private corporations are making money on the backs of convicted Americans just as they did over a century ago. The U.S. has the largest private prison population. Private prisoners uh, or private prisons house 8.2 percent of the people in federal and state prisons. And these corporations are raking in about $4 billion in revenues. Also, private prison companies profit from giving services at virtually every step of the criminal justice process, from privatized fines, ticket collection, bail bonds, even privatized probation services. Now, their profits come from charging high fees for even services like GPS ankle monitoring, for drug testing, phone and video calls, and even health care. So these, this privatization is just, in, it's rampant. It's in the entire system. And I know it may sound to some people, well, if a private, uh, private company wants to take the burden off of the state and take on prisons, that should be fine. But these stats are showing that that's not even the case. It's all about a money grab. And for those who have family members in prison, Uh, And those in prison know how much something as simple as a phone call or extra money for commissary means. Those phone calls and those food and extra uh, cosmetic items are so overpriced. The prisoners aren't being paid. The corporations are marking up the money. And if they come from disenfranchised or poor backgrounds, everybody loses because the family can't send money. Yeah, it's a lose-lose situation and terribly, terribly unfair. Let's not forget, Aunt Carol, that convict labor is still a big part of the American prison system. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Exactly. Although the 13th Amendment, as we all learned in middle school and high school history class, abolished slavery, it it does that except as punishment for a crime. So you could still be put in slavery if you commit a crime. This exception allows states to maintain their reliance on forced, uncompensated, and predominantly Black labor to this very day. 
Absolutely, Courtney, you've called that right. Ironically, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the country's resilience and reliance on prisoners to perform undesirable or risky tasks for next to no pay, just like they used to in the past, like digging mines and going down into the coal fields and so on. In recent months, inmates working in correction industries have been making the personal protection uh, equipment that's so badly needed by healthcare workers and others on the front line. And in 20 states, inmates are making hand sanitizer and face masks and protective gowns. And some of, uh, in some of those instances, they're not even allowed to use the sanitizer they're making. In Oregon, they're washing the hospital's laundry. And in New York City, inmates at Rikers Island are pay- being paid $6 an hour to dig mass graves for COVID victims. That is horrific. And it seems like nobody's caring about their health care. Now, major corporations often try to distance themselves from being implicated by prison labor. There is a saying that says all publicity is good publicity, but in this case, it's not. So what big corporations do is they engage in what's called subcontracts with companies who will contract directly with the prison itself. By operating through these subcontracts, many corporations will use prison labor, but they can shield themselves from identification by and also that allows them to escape public scrutiny while raping in the economic savings offered by cheap prison labor. That's right. There's uh, money to be made because if you can produce the object cheaper, the product cheaper, and sell it higher, then you are going to make a lot of profit for your shareholders. So our listeners would be surprised to learn some of the mainstream big-name corporations that use convict labor. We won't tell what they are, but I can assure you, if you knew, you'd be surprised. You'd be very, very surprised. Now, a quote from Charles Dickens appropriately sums up today's episode for me. He said, show me your courts and jails, and I will tell you the state of your country. Well, what we've talked about today paints a pretty grim picture of America because its prisons are very grim. But there are ways our listeners can confront systemic racism in the criminal justice system. That's right, Ann Carol. They can follow and support the Corporate Accountability Lab. Their mission is to use the law to protect people and the planet from corporate abuse. They've done studies calling out and exposing the use of prison labor by American corporations. And boy, I I like looking at their list because that helps me decide how and where I'm going to spend my money. Now, employment is critical to successful reentry for those formerly incarcerated. But when applicants admit they have a felony, the chance of getting called back for an interview drops by 50 percent. We uh, suggest that you advocate for your state, county, city, and businesses to, to adopt what we call fair chance hiring. These are policies to help formerly incarcerated people get jobs. Ask your congressional representatives to support new federal legislation. It's called the Second Look Act, and that would give a second look to people serving long sentences who've already aged out of crime. And speaking of supporting legislation, it's interesting to note that formerly incarcerated people are 43% less likely to return to prison if they have access to college courses while they're incarcerated. So urge your congressperson to support the Bipartisan Restoring Education and Learning Act, 
It's called the REAL Act that reverses the 1994 ban on federal financial aid for incarcerated people. Another way to help is by volunteering to support someone or support an organization in your community that helps contribute to individuals coming back into society. Use your talents, use your time, and use your passion to help. Well, those are just a few ways of getting involved in the issue. The important thing is to remember, we are not helpless, and there is a lot we can do in our own spheres of influence to confront systemic racism. Well, gosh, Courtney, it's been a full three episodes about the criminal justice system, and I can imagine we could probably do several more. So if our listeners want to know more or follow our work, where can they go? They can follow us on several social media platforms, starting with Facebook at the Why Are They So Angry group. We're on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry and on Twitter. And our Twitter handle is W-A-T-S-A underscore online. And that's our handle on Twitter. And you can also go to our website that we always promote because there's so much good information there as well. www www.whyaretheysoangry.com. And while you're there, sign up for the course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it and confront it.